in our allotted portion of scripture to discuss, and then we'll refer to other portions as well, of course, is Mark chapter 14. We're going to read about the trials of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verses 53 through 65, and the first 14 verses of chapter 15. The theme this morning is judgment taken away. Let's go ahead and, once I hear pages turning ceased, I'll start reading in verse 35. 53, I'm sorry. And they they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were the whole assembly of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose a certain bear false witness against him saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither, so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent his clothes, saying, What need we uh, any further witness? Ye have heard the blaspheme, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And so they began to spit on him and cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Verse 1 of chapter 15. And straight away in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are thou the king of the Jews? And he answered and said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. And Jesus answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. Now the feast... Now at that feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that were made of the insurrection with them, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he, ever, uh, as he had ever done unto them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. But the chief priest moved the people 
that they should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto, unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. So Pilate, and so Pilate, willing to contend with the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged them to be crucified. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're so thankful for this portion of Scripture, how it is the pinnacle of, of our historic, of our entire history, how everything in the past would, would point to this one very moment, how we would look back upon this, this dark event that occurred. There was a real historical event in which the Son of Man, the Son of God, would walk earth and He would allow Himself to be taken in the hands of sinners and to be condemned to death. And He would justify many, as it would say in Isaiah, that by the knowledge his, justify, his servant shall justify many, as he would sit here and he would willingly give up his life. We would ask that this righteous servant would get the glory and honor this morning. As we look into this portion, we would ask for uh, wisdom to understand thy word, give us uh, ears to listen to it, and take it in. We ask these things in your son's most precious name. Amen. So it's a very dark time in our history in which we are considering this morning. And an event that's probably, that, that is the most important event in humanity. We, we read last week, our brother Andrew did a, a very good job covering the betrayal of Christ, of the events that led up to this. And here we, we pick right on up from that story of, of how Jesus was betrayed and he was delivered to the chief priest. Now there's been some dark moments in history, many of which a lot of people died, even in the, the history of Israel, in which, for example, when, when, um, before the, t- the time of Samuel and Eli and his sons were doing evil, and they would take the ark as a as a token of luck into battle array against the Philistines. It, it would say that that day there was more than thirty thousand that died in one day. You could say that's a very dark event. You look through history in World War II, there was something like seven hundred and fifty thousand people that had died. Historians estimate that in the bubonic plague, over a hundred million people died. There's not good records of it, but entire populations, 20% of entire countries just perishing. But I will go on to say that this scene leading up to this event is probably the darkest moment that this earth had ever experienced in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense. For it is the, the, the time in which the Holy One who knew no sin would become sin for us. And he would take the judgment that we deserved. And oh, what a dark time it is. But the result was great. The result was the plan of God. So we commence in, in our story in, in chapter, in verse 53, 
Why were the scribes, why were, why were the chief priests looking to kill our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Just a good summary of what events led to culminate for their hearts to be full of such envy and such hate. This is this story, these verses that I'm going to read come in John chapter 11. Shortly after the Lord raised Lazarus and this miracle in which he raised somebody from the dead that had been in the grave for three days. Something that would, in my mind, put to rest any kind of question of who this man was. Now, the children of Israel were raised to, to believe that Jehovah was one. Anybody that would claim to be God is blasphemous and worthy of death. And that, they were right in. But Christ would demonstrate of who He was. And He would reveal Himself of His person by through His miracles, through His works, that He was the Son of God. In John chapter 11, shortly after that miracle, in verse 47, look what it says, look what the scriptures would say. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees and counseled and said, What do we? For this man doeth miracles. That's something good. That's something that's worthy. That's something that they should recognize his authority and submit to it and listen to him. But look what, what their wicked hearts would say. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. What a horrible thing that is. Believe on him. What wicked hearts did they have? And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. Envy, hatred, and wanting to hold on to their place, to their power. They're willing to condemn the very Son of God and try to put Him to death. Now, events before this, they've already tried to stone the Lord Jesus Christ. Where it says, my time has not yet come. Multiple occasions, they would look up to, to try to stone Him. And He just simply would not let Him happen. He says, I give my life willingly. No one taketh it up. The Lord Jesus Christ came to do the Father's will. And it was in His timing that He will lay down His life. For the Son of Man came not to be served unto, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. To give. It's not taken away. The Lord Jesus Christ came willingly to give His life. But His time had not yet come. And these people full of envy, the very leaders of Israel, the very ones that are supposed to shepherd the flock, to bring them back to their, to their Jehovah, to lead the people, were more concerned about their place in government and power, that they were willing to put the very Son of God to death. And one of them, named Caiaphas, began, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Know ye nothing at all, nor consider that it is ex- expedient for us that one man should die for the people, than that the whole nation, that the whole nation perish not. And again, we see the hearts of these high priests of envy. Here they're supposed to be the people that are knowledgeable in the scriptures. And here comes the Son of God, not only knowing the scriptures, but obeying them, doing things they couldn't do, forgiving sins, healing people, making the blind to see, and out of envy 
and hatred in their hearts, they would look for the opportunity. And the opportunity came. They found that Christ, where He was finally back in Judah, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they found an accomplice in Judas Iscariot, who esteemed not the Lord. And He would put a value of Him for 30 pieces of silver, which Andrew discussed last week was far less than the woman that anointed the Lord Jesus Christ with that precious fragrance. She gave all that she had, a year's worth of salary. She just poured it out on the Lord, and it was not a waste to do so. Verse 55, it says that the chief priest and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death. There's something about trials. Something about justice. The courts that we have here in the United States, I will venture to say, compared to many countries, they're, they're fairly good. There is the, in, in this country at least, you're innocent until proven guilty. It's not so in many countries. If you speak out against a power or a dictatorship, you could, you could be executed. They could just be, uh, deemed guilty without an actual fair trial. But look at what they were trying to do. The hour was in the dead of night. This is when everybody was sleeping. You can think of the words of, of our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 3, when He would say, let I me mean, not misquote it, John chapter 3 verse 19, where it says, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and man loved darkness rather than light. Here's, here's a physical darkness. This is speaking about spiritual darkness because their deeds were evil. And in the dead of night, almost in secret, they're trying to condemn and convict the Lord to be put to death. And it says that they would ask, get, try, would, try to bribe people, try to get people to give a false witness of the Holy One who knew no sin and yet found none. Then there was one that bare witness in verse 56. And look where, where he's going. He's, he's now trying to quote the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using a tactic in which prosecutors or, or defense alternatives will even use nowadays. They'll use uh, lines and quotes, maybe out of context, or misquote to try to stumble people. And the Lord was not new to this by any means. He was confronted by the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. Many times they try to ensnare him in words. And he says, he's, and speaking of Jesus, he said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days, I will build another made without hands. Maybe he's trying to, to accuse them of, of a plan of terrorism, of destroying the temple. But if we go back and read that quote, Christ never said, I will destroy this temple. And what Christ was speaking was not about a temple, a physical building. He was speaking about his, his body, his body. And Christ would reveal that this was the whole entire plan, that he was going to give his life a ransom for many. And they're trying to accuse him, putting false words in the mouth of Christ. And yet again, what does the scripture tell us? But neither so did their witness agree together. Right? Unjust judges, unjust accusers to a just accusee. 
the Lamb of God, the innocent one, he would hold his peace. Now, what a vast contrast. And we're going to see this recurring theme that he would answer nothing. You know, recently, in work, there's, there's been a lot of discussion. And mostly, it, it becomes a lot of political discussion. And I usually try to stay out of it. I'm not really into politics. But recently, there was events of a a judge that was trying to be appointed to the Supreme Court. And I'm not picking sides and I'm not bringing out politics. But I just want you to consider the differences here. There is a man that got promoted, right? Essentially, in layman's terms, getting promoted to a new position. One side that's of the other party is saying, no, we don't want this man to be there. So there comes four accusers from, I don't know, 30 years ago at... Don't do the math. When Back when he was 17 years old or something, accusing him, telling him, no, he did this. He should not be appointed to that position because he did this to me, right? And immediately, what was this man's response? He defended himself. Instantly would deny everything. And the accusers would accuse him. And then they would try to sift out, oh, some of the wit- three of the witnesses are, are not... Uh, Credible. One of them seems to be credible. They had a whole hearing. It becomes a show, right? But look at what this trial, there's an accuser. You're accusing me? No, I'm innocent. Immediately, he would begin to defend himself and would try to stand up. Now, Christ, I'm not, and only God, I'll venture to say this, only God knows this man in his heart. Whether what he did back when he was a teenager or what he didn't do. He knows if the accuser is telling the truth or if they're being a false witness. But what we do know is that Christ was innocent. That we do know. We knew that He committed no sin, that He had done no wrong. And yet His response was to hold His peace and answer not. And the high priest, getting angry, would go on and accuse him and and ask him, Art thou the Christ? Art thou the Christ? Now, the, the high priest, the priests and the scribes, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, 16 through 18, we won't turn there, but they were placed in the position in which God ordained, where when one was being accused and there was false witness, they were the ones that were to interject, to reason, and to discern if what was being said was a lie. And they were supposed to judge the accuser that was committing a false accusation against someone. They were supposed to judge them and punish them. And here we see the ones that are set to be over the people, to try to to make things right, to actually be the leaders and the ringleaders, to try to condemn a just one. How dark and removed has the leadership of Israel gone from back in the times of the Old Testament to now where all they care about is power. Caring about power to do the most atrocious crime that has been committed in history. Christ speaks up finally. He says, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. 
Perhaps this is the first statement that was made that was true. Maybe that was the only reason why Christ actually spoke up. For everything that they were saying was just so blatantly a lie that He didn't acknowledge it. And when He asked them, plain and simple, are thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Okay, this is true. And Christ would not deny it. And He mentions that He is. And He mentions His second coming. Amen. The second coming is, is, it's a vital part that sometimes we forget. It's part of our gospel. It's part of our faith. And Christ would even venture to say that part. He didn't have to. He could have just said, I am. But He would go on to say, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, coming in the clouds of heaven. Of course, the high priest would go on to, on the Sharad to rent his clothes with, by, by the way, by Levitical law, the high priest was never to rent his clothes, but they were by bad priests, and we could see that at this point. That's not a surprise. And they would speak of blasphemy, blasphemy, and they would try to condemn him to death. Now Christ never denied that he was the Son of God. He never denied his deity when he took this veil of flesh, when he would do the miracles. What comes to mind when he would uh, ask them, is it lawful? Right? Or, or, let me not misquote. Matthew chapter 9, when he would say to this, this poor individual, here, let's just turn there. Let me turn there really quick to not misquote. There was a man that was sick. In verse 2, sick of palsy, lying on his bed. And Jesus, seeing his faith, said unto the sick man, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Oof. How this must cut to the heart of those religious leaders. And behold, certain scribes said said within themselves, not even audibly, right? Christ knowing their hearts. Said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. This man blasphemeth. This is what they're accusing him here. They, ye have heard the blasphemy. This man is blaspheming to be God. And what does Christ say? Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? Is it easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise, uh, arise and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath the power on earth to forgive sins. Then he saith unto the sick man, Arise, take up thy bed, and go to thine house. And he arose. Now what, what was Christ doing there? He was telling them, Not only have I the power to forgive sins, that's something that you can't see, but to demonstrate that I am who I'm claiming to be, I am going to heal this man. I'm going to perform this miracle, so that in the work... You might believe me. That you might believe that I am the Son of God. That you might believe that I have the power to forgive sins. And he would plead in separate occasions, Gentlemen, if you don't believe in me, look at the works. Witness it for yourself. If you don't believe me, believe the work. And then you'll believe on him who hath sent me. And these men... Very, very familiar with what Christ hath done. 
very familiar with what he did to Lazarus, raising him from the dead, they would still accuse him, not looking at the evidence that Christ would give. And they would go on to start to physically abuse Christ. And this is the start of his physical agony that he would suffer. They would spit on him to the face of their creator, to the one who holds their very breath. They would begin to buffet him, in other words, to punch him. They would cover his face and say, prophesy, prophesy. Not to bring sports into this discussion, but Mike brought up sports this morning, so I'm going to bring up sports myself. Some of the, the, the nastiest injuries that occur in sports, it's when somebody is blindsided, meaning that they are hit without anticipating the hit, right? God created our bodies. When somebody's going to punch you in the face, even if you get struck, you clench and you protect yourself. When somebody goes up for a pass in the middle, they don't see the safety behind them and they're stretched out. They're very vulnerable. People's careers get ended that way. And here's Christ. He covered his face in a, in a way, blindsiding him and punching the very Creator. Could he have spoken? Could he have stopped this? Did he have the power? Yes. He would tell Peter, Peter, don't you know that I could call upon my father? He would send 12 legions of angels and they would fight for me at his very words. And the account of John where they would go to pursue him, art thou the Christ? Who is Christ? We're going to arrest him. I am he. They would fall back. His power was not a mystery. It was revealed. And yet Christ that servant would willingly give up his life, a ransom for many. So that was the atrocity that was the ecclesiastical court. The religious leaders trying to condemn him out of envy. False accusations. And what we see in chapter 15, we're very quickly running out of time, We'll see it's more of a civic court. Now it's trials before the Roman governor or the Roman Empire. And oh, how the accusations that they're trying to put him to death is a lot different. Which means they're wanting themselves to put him to death for certain reasons because of power. Pilate would eventually see right through this out of envy. He would recognize this out of envy. But yet their accusations were completely different. Their accusations were he makes himself the son of God. He needs to be put to death. In verse 1, it would say that they would hold counsel. And Mark, Mark summarizes a lot. If you take the account of, um, for example, of Luke, they would go on to say to Pilate, this man, this man is doing wrong to the empire. He's telling us to not pay tribute to Caesar. Another lie. In which when they came to ensnare the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember his... His, his beautiful words, render unto Caesar's, what is Caesar's, and unto God, what is God's? Lying, false witness, trying to ensnare him. They would say that he makes himself a king. In a sense, he's trying to rebel against you. How the accusations would differ. Trying to put 
the Holy One, who knew no sin, to death. And Pilate would ask him, in verse 2, Are thou the king of the Jews? Christ is saying, Thou sayest it. I believe in John it says, uh, Christ would tell him, This is what they're telling you, right? This is, I mean, you're hearing this. And again, Christ would go on to hold his peace. And Pilate would be marveled that he wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't defend himself. He could see the, the injustice that's occurring. Read a verse in, in Isaiah chapter 7. Very familiar verse. Beautiful verse. In verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth, openeth not his mouth. Oh, how John would say, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. Here's the Lamb before the slaughter, opening not his mouth. And Pilate would marvel. He could clearly see. He would proclaim him to be innocent. He would say, I find no fault in him. Multiple times. Read it in Luke. Read it in John. Multiple times. He would say, I find no cause of death to put him to death. I find no fault in him. And here, from the the small pieces of history that we have on Pilate, he was a ruthless man. For him to proclaim, for him to be innocent. Clearly, he was innocent. And there goes to the Barabbas bit. How ironic that this person named Barabbas had this tradition where one prisoner was released and that the leaders would move the people to pick Barabbas. Barabbas. Where it would record in verse 7 and other other portions, the other Gospels, would also agree to this, that he was a murderer, an insurrection. He was, in all in simple words, he was somebody that would rebel against the government. Somebody that would rebel against the government. And that he would have political uprisings. And he committed murder in those. For at the time, the Romans were, in a sense, overlords. It was part of their empire. And the section of Judea, Pilate was the governor. And he would ask them, do you want Jesus? Do you want Barabbas? Do you want the king of the Jews? Or Barabbas? Look at what he says in, in verse 10. For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. Envy. Even Pilate could see exactly what their motives were. In the account of Matthew, it would say that Pilate's wife had a vision. It says, don't be part of this, Pilate. I've had horrible visions. Be, get clean of this man. And Pilate, again, will be pressured. And he will be pressured. And he will look to release him. It will get to a point where he's like, I'm going to punish him. And you will have the Lord scourged. His back will be plowed. He will just bleed. And perhaps Pilate, in his mind, he would be thinking, if I... Punish them physically, bad enough. They'll feel bad. And say, that's enough. The whole tumult would say, crucify him. Crucify him. 
to a point where Pilate says, Why? I find no cause worthy of death in him. And trying to flex his muscles, he says no. Essentially, he says no. But then comes to that same point that cuts at the human heart. Power and envy. Everybody wants to be, in a sense, Lord of their own life. Everybody wants to say, I'm in control. Many people don't come to Christ because of that very lie of the devil. You be the master of your own domain. You have power and dominion over your your own life. You do as you please. You will find freedom in that. And what you will find is enslavement to sin. And here they play that very same card to Pilate. If you release him, you are not a friend of Caesar. It would say in the count of John. And here Pilate would sit. And the book of Matthew will record that he would wash his hands. In a sense like, I'm delivering him up to be sacrificed, crucified, but I'm, I'm not in agreement with it. Regardless, the outcome was that he gave up Christ to be crucified. Power and envy. It's a very wicked problem in the heart of man. In the heart of man. When what Christ would preach would be the exact opposite. To give him your life. To give him your heart. And in it, you will find joys. You will find real freedom in serving Him. Malachi said that beautiful verse, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and taste. And it is a lie that's fed to humanity that if you follow Christ, you're giving up your rights, you're giving up your life. To maintain your own power, you have to be your own ruler. And oh, how Pilate, when he got to that part, he was willing to contend with, to, to put off the people, to declare them innocent, and he was willing to not listen to them, to flex his muscles, in a sense, as the governor and the ruler of that region. But until it came to this that they, they would quote something that would endanger his position in office, that's when he would give in. Because he was afraid of the people. He was afraid of losing his power. And Pilate, willing to contend with the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged them to be crucified. Oh, the atrocities of these trials. We could see throughout history, there's, there's even in this country been trials um, that the outcomes have had negative impacts. Um, there's a, a trial called Roe v. Wade, Roe versus Wade, and those are aliases names given to the people in the trial. And that's the, the one trial that the verdict was given in which abortion became legalized. And now I'm not saying that had this trial the judge ruled differently, the amount of abortions would not be as high. Who knows? The humanity seems to always be going down in a decline. But it is estimated that Roe v. Wade, the abortions that have been committed in these 40 years, have been more than every single war that we've had in this country since its formation. It is estimated that in one year, there's as many babies being murdered as is there as, as many died in World War, World War II, World War I. 
And oh, how the atrocities of this trial. But the difference was this is the Father's will. He was as a lamb led unto the slaughter. And he was there to redeem humanity, to get that judgment passed from us to him. And I'll close with this, with, with a short story from the Old Testament. We don't have to turn there. Because this judgment passed. It passed from us to Christ for those who through faith believe in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There was a rock that would follow the children of Israel through the wilderness. And the first appearance of the rock, and this is not being me, fa- me being fanciful, that rock was Christ. As Apostle Paul was saying in Corinthians 10, verse 4, that spiritual, we all drank of that spiritual rock, which was Christ. And it will get to the point where, where God would liberate His people from slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. They would go to the wilderness. They would see the miracles that were performed. They would see the sea opened. And they would walk through it. They would be saved from the hand of Pharaoh. And yet they would murmur and rebel against the servants of God, the soon-to-be high priest and the lawgiver Moses himself. And oh, how Moses would plead to God. And graciously, God would answer him immediately. Speak to the people. God would speak to Moses. And he would say, Go, take thy rod, thy rod in which thou struck the river, a rod of judgment, a rod that brought forth death, and strike the people. Is that what God said? Oh, my God is much more gracious than I would ever have been. He says, take thy rod. Gather the people. Bring them before the rock. And I will stand on the rock before you and the people. And strike the rock. And out would come forth life. Water. To feed the people. And the people would be saved. My mind goes to that hymn, 165 in the black book. Jehovah lifted up His rod. O Christ, it fell on Thee. Thou was sore stricken of Thy God. There's not one stroke for me. The blood beneath that rod has flowed. Now cloudless peace for me. And thus the judgment was passed from us unto the very Son of God, that servant who came not to be served unto, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Lord and our Father, we're so thankful for thy obedient servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, the one who justified many, the one whom you had your pleasure and delight, the one who the heavens will open and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And yet we would see that it, would be not, it wouldn't be enough to withhold them from us. And you would freely give them up as a sacrifice for many, to redeem many. And we stand, Father, this morning as a redeemed people, giving you thanks for that servant who who is worthy above all, worthy that words cannot express, thy gift unspeakable. We would ask that his name would get the glory this morning. In your son's most precious name we pray. Amen.